Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is the Selling Soul Podcast. I'm Andrew Millen, and today on the show, which is episode number 61, I will be chatting to singer, songwriter, Sheffield United fan and all-round decent bloke, Paul Heaton. This episode has been kindly sponsored by McCool's Bar in Glasgow and Melon Ray of Madden Centra Thermofecken. Thanks to Nick and all the crew at the pub for the continued support of our independent Celtic fan media platform and we can't wait to get back into the pub to hear the tunes and enjoy a few pints with good people. Nick and everyone connected to the pub do brilliant work within the community and with helping refugees. McCool's is more than just a pub. It has heart and it has soul. And special thanks to Ray and Mel from our local shop, Madden Centra in Termofecken, for also sponsoring this episode. They're off license, which I have overused in the absence of the pub during these lockdowns. They've great grub in the chipper, lovely ice cream, and you can even get a punt on the lotto. I haven't danced with them since Paul and Jackie played in Trinity College, but hopefully that will change soon. Don't forget, folks, support local small business as the bigger ones have made plenty during these lockdown times. We've decided that we're going to keep all the podcasts free of charge. We don't put anything behind a paywall or Patreon, as we know some people are skint, but they may still like to listen to all the content we put out. So if you can afford it and you like what we're doing across all our platforms, you can visit CelticFansion.com and you can donate for the price of a pint or a coffee. And if your business thinks like we do, or your Celtic Supporters Club like the podcast and would like to become a sponsor, please email us at info at and you can also contact us through the website or message us on social media. Well, we have a massive game on Sunday, the Glasgow Derby. Not the oldest one because that would be against our great city rivals, Party Tizzle, but against a new club, only nine years in existence. But in fairness, they've done well to come through the divisions and win their first major trophy this season. We kicked off our Glasgow Derby weekend with talk from the terraces on the YouTube channel Celtic Fans in TV when average Joe Miller from Not The View joined me for a chat 
and how we laughed on what can only be described as a very below average podcast. This will also go out on the podcast channel tomorrow. So if you haven't watched it, give it a listen if you're out having a walk with a dog or a wee drive in the car. Now that we can get outside our 5k zones and even our friends in England can now go to the pub for a chat. Imagine being in a pub and being able to talk after the match about football. I'm so jealous, folks. And to our Aussie friends and those in New Zealand and Dubai, enjoy the match because I know you'll be all gathering because you're almost back to normal over there. I do envy you. We also have the pre-match Celtic AM show on Celtic Fanzine TV with former Celtic striker Scott McDonald joining us from his home in Australia and he'll be sharing his memories of Ibrox's visits as a fan and a player. Kieran Kenny from the Nave Park Celtic Supporters Club in Dublin also joins us and historian and author David Potter will be on hand to give us the history of the Glasgow Derby, both old and new, while the Blandy Pilgrims will provide a wee song. That goes out on Saturday evening or Sunday morning, depending on how the hangover is after this podcast today. And I will also put it out as a podcast early next week for you walkers and drivers. On the website, David Potter's weekend long read will feature the late great Jock Steen, and we also will have a few half-decent articles and previews for your reading pleasure. Folks, keep all the comments and suggestions coming in for who you would like us to have on the show. And here's a few we received since last time. On last night's talk from the Terrace's YouTube video, Big Joe, smashing guy. I love a chat at McCool's about the great love in our life, Celtic. Lovely guy. I can't wait till the manager returns. 60,000 at a game. Then back to the best pub on the planet, McCool's, to meet the lads, have a few points of Guinness and sort out the world problems. It's just a pity they didn't come to us. We would have sorted the coronavirus out in a month. And that comes in from Jim Cameron. Looking forward to grabbing you for a point, Jim. Back in McCool's soon. Great to hear Jackie meeting sounding so well. Him and Tam Donnelly and so many others have looked after us over the years in Las Vegas, where I've met many of my footballing heroes. I walked in many countries and I live in Bucharest. When I used to tell people of going to Vegas for the Salad Convention, then coming back and showing them pictures and videos of what we had got up to, they were amazed. Fans of other great clubs could not believe we did that. It's so well organised and so is the Celtic family. Hail, hail. And that comes in from Peter Walls and that was on our Jackie Meeting podcast, which was episode 59. That was a belter of an interview. You felt like you were sitting in a bar just chatting about Celtic. Great stuff. And that comes in from David Gartland in Dublin. And that was also about my podcast with Jackie Meeting. Absolutely outstanding, mate. Reliving 1988 right now. What a season and what a way to end it. Seemed like every game we would win in the last minute, and we did. Thanks for the memories. Incidentally, Joe Miller blowing kisses in 1989 was a very close second. And that comes in about our Celtic AM Scottish Cup special a couple of weeks ago when we played Falkirk. And that comes in from Gus McDonald, and he signs a Gus McDonald people before profit. And listen, folks, we received so many lovely comments when we announced that Paul Heaton would be coming on to the, the podcast. Uh, including one from an unlikely source, Mick Reid, who said, Now there's a talent and a brilliant human being. I think that just sums up Paul Heaton in a few words. And I think after you listen to our conversation, you'll all agree. Sheffield United fan Paul Heaton is a singer, songwriter, who has never hidden behind the door when it comes to speaking out about politics and social issues. His CV of work and hit records is vast. From the early House Martins to the beautiful South, to his solo career and to his reunion with the all-singing, all-dancing, talented Jackie Abbott in more recent years. Hi, Paul. You're very welcome to the Celtic Soul podcast. This time last year, you were scheduled to be on tour in Ireland, 
And we were all looking forward to catching you live again in Dublin and Belfast after that brilliant gig on the Trinity College cricket pitch, a place I never thought I'd get to dance to Paul Heaton. Hello there. You okay? I'll go past. I didn't didn't even know it was a cricket pitch. You Uh, hated it all until we made point of it out. Right, yeah. Looking Looking back at it now, the thing that looked like a pavilion must have been the pavilion, so yeah. A, fanta- a fantastic gig. Yeah, it was lovely, really nice evening, uh, really lovely setting. And I think most, well, those outdoor ones, as we've got older, they've become more more and more friendly and more, I don't know, it's hard to explain, but you could probably see on stage that we're enjoying it as much as the people in the audience, you know. It's, it's really, really good fun, quite touching as well, you know. Yeah, I remember that night going into the gig. There was no pushing or, or shoving, and even coming out when we were all leaving at the same time. And uh, you know, we had a little whiskey tent and stuff like that. So as we do get older, I think we're getting a bit more sense, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I remember the first uh, few gigs in Ireland, and they were a long, long way from uh, from that. The first, yeah, the first time we played in Dublin was. Uh, was absolutely mad and 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 Belfast too. Belfast was crazy. Was yeah. that that was eighty six in the Olympic ballroom? Yeah, really mad. I wasn't at that gig. The first time I saw you was in um, the S of X, right. and, it, and it was the farm that was supporting you. And we had Peter on the podcast a couple of weeks, and we reminisced about that night and how excited I was as a, as a young teenager going to my first proper gig and going up to the big smoke because I live yeah. I live in Drada, thirty miles down the road. So uh, yeah. at that time, it was a big thing to go to a gig. But you know, we, we've been back a few times to see you. The first time I saw the House Martins was the video of Happy Hour on Top of the Pops. Although, I was telling a mate today, I was interviewing it, and he says, no, we saw them on the tube during Flag Day. But I think he was just trying to be cool, Paul, because I, I can't remember that. But what stuck out, you know, that day was Paul Heaton's music was attitude. And all three would influence me, Paul, back in the 80s, in my younger years. Were you aware back then the effect the band was having on youngsters I suppose because you were a little older than us because up until then Paul we were all in musical tribes we were skinheads punks rockers rude boys smith's heads whatever it was but then when I went to that gig in the SFX I saw all sorts I saw you know a mix of people there was a lot of politics happening outside there was a lot of pamphlets a lot of leaflets being given out and two things to stick out in my mind from that night Paul was the lyrics even when the Queen was charming, that, oh, sorry. <laughs> You're worse than I am with the lyrics. Well, you have a lot more to sing than me. Yeah. Even when the kids were starving, they all thought the Queen was charming, which is something that's always stuck with me. But another thing you said at that gig was you said, being Irish, you're bombarded with shit every day, like the Sun newspaper. And that was 1987. And I still remember those words. And they're as true now as they were then. And over all those years, since 1987, the shit we were bombarded with by the likes of the Sun newspaper. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, at the time, first to, to answer your first question, no, I, I don't think I realised how much of an influence we were over the different groups. But I think it's sort of England was always going to be worse than Ireland anyway. I, I think people in England stuck to their groups more rigidly. You know, like there was more snobbery in England towards music, whilst... If there was a decent band with a decent tune, young Irish people would go along to see it. Do you know what I mean? Even though they might be of different groups. And because we didn't stick our 
I don't know what the expression is really, but we didn't pin our colours to any one mast. We would get skinheads coming along. We'd get a few early football casuals, this and that. So I think that was always important. And we looked like, we looked a little bit of everything anyway, you know, the way we was dressed. I'd wear, quite often wear Doc Martin shoes, you know, jeans turned up, but I also wore a Pringle top. So we weren't really falling into any group. But I was delighted when I got over to Ireland because that was the first time really I saw that we, in England, we had a big indie following, you know, like uh, all based around John Peel because he'd built us up from playing Flag Day in 1985 or maybe even the year before. And so over in England, we were sort of followed by indie kids. But as soon as we got over to Ireland, I mean, as I said, particularly the first one in 86 at the Olympic, it was, <laughs> the atmosphere was crazy. People dropping down off the bal- jumping off the balconies, which <laughs> it was sort of like, you know, we'd be singing an a ac- cappella song, you know, Heaven Help Us All or something like that. And then there's been this terrible thud, you know, like you look around and one of the kids had just jumped, uh, which was just, it was, it was incredible for us. So I liked the fact that when we got to Ireland, there, were, there was different groups of people. And, and as I say, in, in Belfast too, I, I, I think we appealed to, I wouldn't say both sides of the division, but I, I, I suppose we had a bit for everybody. You know, like people could come along and they could just listen to a song like Happy Hour. You know, they wouldn't have to be political. But if you wanted to see politics in it, then there was other songs like, you know, Get Up Off Our Knees or later the one you're talking about, people are getting themselves to death. So uh, and the thing about the sun, yeah, I mean, I didn't envisage that position changing, really. You know, the, it's the British press, isn't it? And uh, I don't know whether in 87 it was before or after the campaign. It was probably after the campaign they'd had against me in the paper. But I realised, you know, I, I never bought the sun, but I realised from the nature of those newspapers we were always get, there's a good chance we were going to have a tough time by them because everybody did you know they turned on everybody they, they didn't like our politics but I don't think they liked us anyway uh, you know it didn't fit the criteria but you never were going to power because from the early albums and the early performances and who you supported it was always um, you know especially as a teenager I was very drawn to what I was seeing outside the gigs as much as inside the gigs because you were given newspapers. I was starting to read. At that time, you know, South Africa was very in the news. Obviously, we had our own troubles here in Ireland. And I remember having an argument with a girl. It wasn't at one of your gigs. I was a little older. And she was going on about Palestine and South Africa. And I was just saying, oh, we've got a bit of a problem here as well. A lot of students, it was cool to be involved with Palestine or South Africa. But it wasn't so cool to say that you support uh, Irish freedom or determination to freedom or United Ireland. It wasn't so cool then, Paul. It's a little cooler now um, because we have mainstream politicians now coming out and backing it. Back then it wasn't so. But anyway, Paul, I don't want to get bogged down on on my my, my, uh, time going to see you. Growing up, Paul, football was a huge influence, but obviously music, politics. So what was a young Paul Heaton like? Uh, Well, my household was sports, pure sports, really. We had my dad and three brothers, you know, two other brothers, had two older brothers, and we were all involved in sport. My dad ran, well, he was a coach at football. He'd been a, a footballer himself, you know, to a decent standard. Uh, was played golf off scratch. Was a really good boxer, really good rugby player. His uncle had played for England Rugby Union, uh, Jack Heaton. 
and it goes all the way through now. My brother's kid was England school's captain at golf and his other kid is, you know, like uh, a semi-pro footballer. So it, it was all football, all sports. We were taught everything. And that was, you know, like all our weekend would be football and mainly going in my dad's car, you know, with a big net full of footballs and so, uh, yeah, that's how I was brought up. We weren't really brought up on music at all. My mum and dad both loved... Uh, my mum's just passed away in uh, October, November time, uh, and my dad has passed away a long time ago, but I was just looking through her stuff, and they were really into their music, uh, you know, to go and watch live, live stuff. Uh, but we didn't have any instruments in the house. We had no music instruments. All we had was the radio. But we, it, I, I would. It was weird. It was sort of music was in the background, football and all the other sports were in the foreground. Um, but both my mum and dad had nice voices, nice singing voices. So it was a, it was an odd mix. There was no politics in the house at all. No discussion about politics. That's something that came to me later. You know, I don't know how because my brothers, my brother, probably through my dad really, because my dad was this very, very fair person. He believed in above all treating every everybody equally so yeah it was it was a good household a happy household and yeah just football all the time every Saturday and Sunday um and he wouldn't let me play football at school or wouldn't let me play for the school because he was an absolute purist uh you know like and unfortunately he came along and heard one of the teachers shout get rid of it and that was it <laughs> I had no <laughs> chance to play for them again so you don't use language like that on my boy. You can use it with the other players. Because I was told never to get rid of it. Do you know what I mean? The absolute opposite as you look. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So he was a real purist with football and um, a very popular. And he ran teams really throughout his life. After we'd grown and left the, left the home, he ran junior t- teams up until his 60s. My brother ran junior teams as well. I... I played till I was around about 40. I played about 700 games Saturday and Sunday, you know, at senior level, that is, and managed them for another 10 years, uh, local side. Um, so, yeah, it's just been football all my life. And most of the old House Martins and Beautiful South gigs, used the tours were arranged about getting me back on a Saturday or Sunday. If you look at all the old uh, dates in the Beautiful South calendar, you can almost always see that we're playing in the north at the weekend. So I can get back to Hull, or uh, you know, on the Saturday or the Sunday. So yeah, it was it was all about that really. And the, and uh, the rest of me, you know, the, at school uh, I was, uh, you know, I, was, I wasn't interested in school really. And I started becoming interested in sort of, I don't know what happened because my bro- my two older brothers, they were um, one of them became a scaffolder on leaving school, and the other one a lorry driver. But he's now he's been a BT engineer, you know, working for British Telecom since he was seventeen, and he's still in that job. So, but at some point, at the age of fourteen, I started writing things down, you know, and and writing little songs and stuff like that. And then punk happened, and the songs got angrier. And yeah, it just sort of it was just something I did. And then I, I left school like they did at sixteen, and I worked in an office for three years. Just sat there like this, you know, um, <laughs> before computers. Just look, I was working in a bought ledger department uh, for a paper company. It's like a company that did industrial magazines called industrial newspapers. So I did that for three years. And then I worked in a blind home for a year, uh, just under a year. And then, uh, yeah, that was it. Yeah, that, yeah, so I was also, I think behind the politics, another thing I should say, is when I was 13, 
we moved from Sheffield to Surrey and that politicised me because I suddenly became very proud of being from Sheffield, you know, and got into a lot of arguments with people from Surrey. And although the school I went to in Surrey wasn't, it was certainly wasn't a posh one, I sort of got a chip on my shoulder about being northern down south, you know. So that sort of helped me develop arguing. Um, and, yeah, the rest, yeah, it just gradually grew from there. And the other explosion musically for me was the miners' strike, which then politicised me further because that was, I've seen that, almost as Yorkshire against the rest of the world. That's what it sort of felt like at the time. You know, Scargill was up against all the other, uh, you know, Sue, uh, was it Sue Lawley on the, you know, just the British press and everything. I could see it just, yeah. <laughs> so that changed, uh, the House Martins became more um, political at that point as well. So I remember as a kid, Arthur Scargill coming to Drada to uh, address the council. I remember that. That's that's a, and I remember the headlines in the local paper. That's that's one of the sticks there because uh, you know the news. You would tune in every night to see the miners strike, no matter what age you were over here, because there was there was bound to be aggro. And it, yes. you know we, we 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 mightn't have understood what was going on. My father would have, um, but when we were, we were looking in, it was like. And yeah. of course, we we were brought up anti-Tory, so yeah. I'm not saying we were brought up. And the English, but we, we certainly had more in common with the miners than we had with um, yeah, yeah, the, the Tories. So anyone that was fighting against the British government, probably as we were looking in from Ireland, you know, it was a positive to us. But what happened to those communities, Paul, when you look to the communities in Scotland, that the people like Shankly and Steen and that came from, some of them communities are, because the mines are gone, they're completely gone. Yeah. yeah. Well, on, on the subject of any... Uh resentment about uh, English people anywhere. I, 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 you know, I've, I've never uh, felt it. And the reason I've never felt it is I've never represented the British in a negative way abroad. Do you know what I mean? I go to Ireland, I realise I'm in a foreign country and I respect the people of that country, you know, and, and I don't go mouthing off about things that have upset the Irish in the past, quite simply. First of all, because historically I'm on their side but secondly I won't be such a dick and I'm not such a dick to think that when somebody expresses English resentment they're talking about me this is the problem they're not talking about me they're talking about what the British government has done you know and the history of of, of the British government's involvement on the island so I I never take it the same way you know when when people say things when they go to Scotland obviously it's a different thing in Scotland but I, I, I don't feel I've never felt as though it's been targeted towards towards myself at all and I don't I think it's a misconception uh, to ever describe um, how Irish people are feeling as you know like anti-English it's, it's anti-British government you know and it always ha- has been always will be you know I'm sure there's a couple of people who don't like English people for different reasons it just as that you know there's a few people you go certain places that don't like you because you're wearing the wrong football shirt or you're too loud or whatever that happens you know but, you know, I, I, I've not experienced it. But you wrote a song about Ireland and Jackie has an Irish connection. She's an Irish family and you performed, I think it was on, not the last album, the album, was it the album before that? Yeah. A, lovely, a lovely song about my country. Yeah. Which yeah, Blackwater Banks, yeah. Sorry, Paul, I've added into my DJ set and people look at me a bit strange when I play it. Yeah, I, I've, I've written a couple about Ireland, actually, but I've, that's the only one I've sort of actually let go. Uh, but, yeah, I, I don't know... I, it felt like 
just when Jackie rejoined in 2014, is we went back to Ireland quite a lot, and it really felt like when we were playing some of the beautiful South songs, which we hadn't played for a long time, say Rotterdam and things that Jackie sung, I thought to myself, bloody hell, I've had a really long relationship with this country. Not just long, but I've come here a lot, you know, I, I, as I have a lot of places, but it, it's always felt like um, people have sort of kept me in. And I was just thinking, I, I need to write a song about this and, and how, I, how much I love travelling around the country and what I see when I, you know, in different places of the country. So that was my reason for writing it. Yeah, I think it's it's been a long relationship. You know, when things get to sort of a certain age, you know, where I probably would have been like 54 when I wrote it, it's what you start thinking things are important, you know, like, and particularly now, you you know, now we can't travel. Um, it's going to be incredible to go back to Ireland and some of these places that, that have been um, supporting me, you know, me music and everything since... 85, you know, it's a, it's a long period, you know, I've been play, I've played music in, I counted it up and I can't do maths, but it's five separate decades now I've actually played music in. So it's a long relationship, you know, and it's it's worthy of a song and it's worthy of thanks as well. I, I never fail these days when I go on stage to thank people for, you know, like 30 whatever years, 34 years of, you know, proper happiness and, and good communication and good friendship, you know. It doesn't feel like 20-something years, Paul. It feels, it just, life's gone by in, in a flash when you think back to some of, some of the gigs. But you mentioned Rotterdam now. When Jackie came back, you start doing it again in the set. I, I've never heard on the terrace, Paul, but I'll give you a little story. We were playing Feyenoord in a, a four-way pre-season tournament. It was Tottenham, Borussia Dortmund, Celtic and Feyenoord. And the last game was Celtic and Feyenoord. Right. And, because of the hooligan problem over there, there was, there was a lot of hooligans in the train station and basically the stadium's outside Rotterdam. So we were staying in Amsterdam. So they had a football express, which right. didn't stop in, it brought you straight from Amsterdam. So we were all waiting to get them and they had us in a kind of a caged paddock. Right. And there was, there was a few people up the front kind of pushing the, arguing with the royal police to, to let us out. We had to catch a train and they were explaining that the train wouldn't go without us. They just needed to clear the, the Rotterdam fans and it was yeah, no yeah. big deal. But, um, a friend of mine started singing Rotterdam and it went the whole way back. And if, if we had to have an, a, maybe a camera phone or something to get to capture it, yeah. everybody was singing it. And it just took the whole aggro out of the, the situation. Right. So unknown to yourself, Lyrics You Row had diffused a bit of aggro between Celtic fans, the Royal Police and the Feyenoord fans. Well, I've heard people singing it in the ground like over the last probably three or four seasons. I've heard Sheffield United fans singing it, but also... Leeds and Sheffield Wednesday and Liverpool fans, I think, were the first to sing it. And it's really weird. I always fancied, you know, like getting a song on the terraces, you know, it was always a bit of an ambition. Uh, but I didn't think it had come so late. It was like weird how, like, it was like, again, 20, 30 years after the event, suddenly some bright spark in the pub has just gone, oh, we'll start singing this. Um, so, yeah, I was really pleased when I heard Liverpool fans and, and subsequently all the other other fans singing it well we've got two ultra groups we have the Green Brigade and a group called the Boys so right. if they're listening lads y y you've done the Pesh Mode you've done the Stone Roses it's, oh, yeah. it's time yeah. to do Paul Heaton yeah 
Yeah, well, I'm sure they've thought about me in the past, but now there's a time to say, take it seriously. Well, I have to say that there's always a big group of our crew when, when you do play in Glasgow or Dublin. Yeah. We, we run a bus up and uh, the crack does be 90 on uh, I'll always play a few tunes in the pub before and then we'll get our carrier and get on the bus. But um, I put it on Twitter that we had a couple of seats for that gig in Trinity College. And yeah. um, this person contacted me and says, uh, we're okay for lift, but have you any tickets? And I said, no, I don't have any tickets. And Jackie was obviously tagged in the, in the Twitter. Right. And yeah. she, she came on and said, no, but I have. And she looked right. after the girl with the tickets. And that was like, that was standout quality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pop stars don't do that. She's very good for that. <laughs> what she's exceptionally good for is last minute we get all the guest list on and our manager's really stressed about it and then you know with five minutes before doors open she's like oh I've forgotten somebody was somebody I was speaking to yesterday on Twitter and they're bringing 10 people and, and Tom our, our manager's oh my god why didn't you tell me earlier but yeah he's, I think people appreciate it it's a nice touch she's not been on Twitter for a while but she's she's very good when she gets on there very entertaining and uh, communicative people appreciate it yeah and, and I remember one night in the Olympia a pal of mine Dixie had uh, he, he two on the guest list but he wasn't he was he was walking in England and as the bus was pulling up outside the Olympia he messaged me and said I've got two on the guest list that put you, uh, you know you use my name so I said okay so I went in to make sure we were on the guest list got, and I went out and all the touts are outside it's a solo gig like most of your gigs Bob mm. and but I'm not giving them to the touts because they're going to sell them a profit. So I went into the pub next door and I said, is anyone looking for tickets? And everyone had tickets. So I couldn't even give your tickets away. And just as I walked out the door, a girl said to me, have you got anything? And much to what? I said, no, I'm hanging. I says, I'm after getting on the guest list. And I gave the girl the two tickets. Yeah. And then we went in and we were lucky enough we got on the little bit in the front. If you're in, normally yeah, yeah. we go up early and queue up, Paul, so we can yeah. go into the bar, have a few points, and then you can get into the little bit in the front. Right, yeah. You know, because they've got your money, you've spent all your money in there. Yeah. But, but that's probably of all the venues I've seen over the years, the Olympia Theatre is probably the best I've seen it. It's just such a fabulous gig. Yeah, yeah well, I, I mean, I've not obviously I've not watched anybody, um, you know, in the event myself. But from stage, you can see everybody because it's really steep. So you basically you've just got a line of people above each other looking at you, right, <laughs> right. Right on top of you, which is good. I don't mind. I don't. I, I, I probably. I used to be a lot more shy on stage than I am now. Now I'm a bit more philosophical about. It. So I like to see people's faces now, whilst before it, it became a bit much for me. You know. Was that during your party days in the beautiful south? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think with me, I, I, it's all back to sort of wanting to be an underdog really, I suppose, and supporting the underdog. And when the Beautiful South sort of became the biggest band going, you know, one of the biggest bands, it didn't fit in with the way I felt about myself. And so I felt as though I had to sort of go further back into myself. But, yeah, I partied uh, pretty hard in between the gigs and quite often on the night of a gig, uh, especially in Ireland, to be honest. Um, we, we used to put, again, if you looked over the la- the the concert, um, you know, the way we put them together, we always put Dublin and Belfast at the end because it was just too much of a risk. And the one time we put them at the start, the tour was terrible. We started off, you know, like, I can't remember, it was like Dublin, Belfast, and then the rest of the tour. 
and we were screwed by the third third day. We were like, oh, God, we've got another 10 of these. Whilst putting it at the end was a lot more sensible. But, yeah, good days. But, you know, we were um, pretty well behaved, really, considering we were drinking a load. Uh, you know, we, we, we got on with everybody we met and sort of, uh, yeah, just yeah, just partied a bit too hard. I couldn't do it now. Yeah, you mentioned how you know, when the band became so big, it didn't fit in with Paul Heaton's, who Paul Heaton is. How does that, like, because I said, I said to Peter when he was on, you know, when fame, does it change it? And he says, well, it kind of has to, but it changes other people towards you. When you got that big, Paul, did, did you feel like I'm losing touch here with who I am? Um, well, definitely the first time, yeah. I mean, the first time with the House Martins, um, what the record company did is because we were sort of, basically Sheep came out, got on the radio, it, we got a bit bigger because of that. Then Happy Hour came out, got on the radio, and then Think for a Minute, and then Caravan of Love. So from about March to December, when Caravan of Love finished, they were adding on different dates to this tour, and it was just going on and on and on. And I got home on, like, December the 22nd or 23rd or something like that in 1986, and walked through the door, and it was a house I'd bought on Grafton Street, um, the Grafton Street in Hull. and. Uh, I thought, I've not even been in this house. And I, I looked in the mirror and I, all year, all I'd been, been called was Paul Heaton, you know, out the house mountains. And I looked into the mirror and just thought, you know, you're not Paul anymore. You're not little Paul. You're Paul Heaton out the house mountain. Everywhere you go, you're that person now to, to everybody else. So the first thing I did was, you know, I got myself stuck into what I always did when I had problems. And that was just playing football. I rejoined my sides. I had a few months off and they were trying to persuade me to do this and that. My dad started talking to me about things, giving me advice, and I steadied that ship. Then formed a beautiful South thinking, oh, it won't be as big. And that became even bigger and went on longer. But I had a little bit more control of that. You know, I felt as though we could be awkward if we wanted to be awkward. It was a bit of a longer thing and less hectic. And all we did with The Beautiful South, and that's what I do now, is I record an album every two years. It sounds like that's not very often, but you sort of spend half a year writing it and about three months recording it, and then the other six months is them packaging it all up and getting it ready for the shops. So really, I've sort of worked at that pace since The Beautiful South. I worked at the same pace go away to write as soon as the album's finished, you know, as soon as the tour's over, I start work on the next one. And that's how I like it. So it's become, fame has become easier to handle, I think, but it's still something that can sneak up on you. And it does change other people's perceptions of you. I, I remember walking into my pub, I'd been in my pub, my local, years, you know, absolutely years. And I'd go in there after, you know, I'd been on top of the pops and Everybody was fine, you know. In fact, the pensions party was on, and when we were at number one with Cara and Love, I got a standing ovation from all the pensioners. They were so proud. They all had the copies of Flag Day from when that had come out. Just went in there. But then, you know, a couple of minutes, minute, uh, months later, a couple of people were saying, yeah, you think you're big, don't you? And I was like, well, not really, no. Yeah, but you think you are, don't you? I said, well, what, what do you want me to think I am? And they were like, big we want you to think you're big I guess all right I think I'm big then and they were like see <laughs> I said I can't really win it and I had things like on the on the bus um you know and this was when all the stuff out the sun was coming out um it's you isn't it you know it's you 
And I say, yeah, that's right. He goes, no, it isn't. I say, well, no, it isn't then. Because nobody is you, though, isn't it? It has to be you. I goes, yeah, it is me. And no, it isn't. Prove it. I said, I'm not proving who I am. <laughs> I say, and then they'd say, if it was you, how come you're holding hands with your girlfriend? You're gay. It's been in the papers. It can't be you. I said, okay, then well, it's not me. <laughs> and they say, but it is so, isn't it? <laughs> and then you just go around your circles. And like, I think it was people wouldn't expect to see you on a bus. People wouldn't expect to see you in your pub. What people wanted out of their money, their pop star, was me getting out of a limo in dark glasses with a security firm around me. And that's what they thought I should do. And when I didn't, that became a problem. But it became a problem sort of, I tried facing up to it, but it became a bit too much of a problem. People were coming, fans were coming from around the country and sitting in my local pub and putting my music on the jukebox and just staring at me. And I, after a while, I thought, this isn't really fair on the other people in the pub, you know, like for me to be the big attraction, you know, like, so it did change in a few ways. And I started hanging around with a few different people just because they took it in their stride. They didn't care who was being like this and who was being like that. And, you know, I lost a couple of friends just because I suppose they, they either didn't like what I'd become, you know, and I mean, I don't mean an arsehole. I actually mean they didn't like me becoming famous, regardless of how I behaved. They didn't like they didn't like the idea of that, which I, I wouldn't like it to happen to people I was close to. You know, it's not a very nice thing. It's good that they've been rewarded, but it's not very nice as a friend, as a close friend, to see everybody suddenly wants to speak to the person you've been close to. You know, it's it's a difficult situation for friends close to you to deal with. You know, on a practical level. You know, like. I still have it now. People will come over and, and thank you very much for saying hello to my wife because uh, so many people come over and they're perfectly decent human beings and they totally cut my wife out of the conversation when I'm stood there, you know, even when I introduce her. And, and I'm talking from the pub to the uh, to somebody who might be working for the record company. They, they just want to speak to me. And, and I've never been like that. And I always want to, you know, well, this is uh, my mate or this is my wife or, you know, these are my kids or whatever. And, the vast majority of people are very um, polite, but at the height of the beautiful South, there was just a load of people who just wanted to speak to me because I'd been on Top of the Pops or whatever that week, you know. And if you're going to be polite to those people, which I like to be, it does. it's quite taxing for somebody close to you, you know. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's a bit spooky, someone coming in and putting your song in the jukebox and staring at you. Oh, yeah, I was a master. <laughs> I was an absolute master at disguising that. I, I became absolutely brilliant because I'd seen them out of the corner of my eye. I could see them looking at me and then going over to the jukebox. And then they'd sit down and I would wait for it to come on. And I'd have all these, you know, and I'd just be talking or smoking or whatever I did at the time and drinking. And I wouldn't stop at all, you know. And, and even when they went to the bar stuff, and I, can you turn this up? And it was blaring out. I still wouldn't talk, wouldn't stop talking. I had it off, you know, off to a T, non-reaction, you know, absolutely non-reaction. But there were some people who just, there was a bloke who was this kid from Leeds, and we just said, look, we don't mind you coming and sitting, but can you not ask questions about the band? Just sit with us if you want. If you want to hang around with Paul, sit there. Don't hang, don't just... 
just asking questions about the band all the time. You know, we talk about this football, we talk about music. I don't, I don't you know, I don't spend a lot of time, I spend loads of time listening to music, but I don't talk about it myself. He couldn't, <laughs> he couldn't sit there. And he was like, he was like, <laughs> like drumming, his, drumming the table with his fingers like that. And he just couldn't stop. He's like, that new single you've got out. And I was just saying, right, that's it, you're going. And they just locked him out of the pub. But he lasted about five minutes without being able to... But yeah, so it became it became something. But I managed to keep going at me foot. A big credit to Hull, you know, where I was living during this this uh, time, was uh, the fact I was able to play Saturday and Sunday football, you know, all the way through it. That's brilliant. Uh, yeah, and nobody gave me. It was a bit of special attention. I got a couple of crunch tackles thrown in on me, and because I didn't back out, I got a good reputation locally as being somebody who just got stuck in and played football and wasn't above anybody or below anybody. So that was brilliant. But, yeah, lots of funny stories about, um, you know, I mean, I, I could tell you loads of really stupid anecdotes. I lived on a street, you know, like a terrace street, and I still do here. Right? But when Caravan of Love got to number one, I'd get pissed up people, you know, like coming down my street and singing outside my house because they knew where I lived. <laughs> and, They'd sing, they, they would sing the whole of a song like Caravan of Love. They'd sing it from start to outside my house. And I'd just sit there patiently and wait for them to finish. And off they'd go. But I'd go to the shop in the morning and say, see you were out there last night again. I said, what? I said, you singing your song in the street. I was like, what? that wasn't me. That was... Yeah, so there was people accusing me of, you know, singing my own songs out in the street. And it was just somebody annoying me. And I'd say, it wasn't me. I said, well, it was you. you. Mind you, you were a bit out of tune. I said, of course I was out of tune. It wasn't me. But it, it, yeah, it would affect your behaviour. I, I became too scared to go to the jukebox in the Grafton just in case one of my songs came on while, whilst I was over it. Do you know what I mean? So people would be saying, well, you've been putting your own songs on the jukebox. So little things I became very aware of not to do and, because that would be a nightmare, you know, like being caught, sort of. But anyway, yeah, it, it, it was all right. I, 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 I much prefer it now, you know, by a long, long way, where I only really get recognised if, if uh, you know, if I've been on telly that week or that morning, you know. It's not so bad now. I'm just laughing because Caravan I Love, um, I finish, I used to finish my set with Enjoy Yourself with the specials. Oh, but, right, yeah. But I, I, I DJ in a late bar, it holds about 70 people it's in the front of a nightclub so the nightclub is playing whatever nightclubs play and I'll, I've kind of it's called Alternative Saturdays and right. I'll play I just play my record collection or my CD collection but I always play and Enjoy Yourself with the specials and maybe you're wondering now because I'd, I would have played the house man the beautiful Sarah Paul he, during the night and it, like it starts at 10 o'clock and finishes at you know, it's good to three in the morning. So, is this in Dublin? Yeah, we probably have. It's a venue called the Cross. We probably have three or four different crowds. We've got right. the people in force for the nightclub, then they go off. Then we've right. another crowd come in, and then we've the people who come at the end of the night because they can get a late drink, not because they like my music, but they can squeeze in for a late drink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But someone sent me one night, play another. Um, House Martin's a beautiful soul song because they don't actually say Paul Heaton, only fans say Paul Heaton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I go, okay, but at, like, at three in the morning, I, I'm, I'm well pissed because it's a night out for me as well. So I'm well drunk. So 
I think I put on Caravan I Love by mistake. I, I, it was on a CD and I stuck it in and, I, yeah, and the place went absolutely ballistic. Right. And that has become my team tune now when I'm finishing oh, the gig, yeah. Paul. And if you could only see the drunk people, including the bar staff, yeah. and bouncers have come in and enjoying themselves at almost 3 a.m. in the morning when there's a thousand people behind us dancing to God knows what. And yeah. this little room is just, it's just, it's just brilliant. So I can yeah. thank you for that song. And yes. I promise it wasn't me outside your house, but if I no, had passed, no. I probably would have sang with the other 70 people in the pub. But anyway, right back to football, Paul. Yeah. Sheffield United is your team. That's right. you, you also have a pre-ritual, which I'm going to get into, your gig ritual of visiting football stadiums. But first, Sheffield United, how are you treated on the terraces? Um, yeah, all right. Yeah, yeah. I've been, yeah, fine. I, I know most of the older fans, you see, because probably, I don't know where we, what division we were in in 1985-86, but we weren't a long way up, you know. So I became sort of in the charts when we were probably in Division 3, the old Division 3, Division 2. Um, coming up that way. So uh, a lot of people knew me either before I was famous or when I became famous in the early years, early months. So, uh, yeah, I'm treated very well. There was a bit of an animosity after the Ched Evans thing, uh, you know, where I resigned from a position at the club. Um, But no, in general, very well. Yeah, I think I'm treated as a blade. That's what I want to be treated as. Yeah, and... As I said, uh, you have a pre-gig ritual. You go, you visit a football stadium. I think the last time we saw you in Glasgow, you'd visited Mullerwell's ground. Mm-hmm. And I think the last time in Dublin was Sean Grover's. Tell us a little bit about that ritual and when did it start? It probably started when I stopped drinking because otherwise I'd, I'd be in a pub. But yeah, if, if I work out the route we're going. Also, I, I travel a lot with a kid called Dave, Dave Goddard. And because they're all boozing on the, on, the, on the bus, I go in the car, you know, separately, and we just tootle along. And as soon as we pass, pass a place like Drogda, we're like, come on then, let's go to the ground. In fact, I've been to the ground. Yeah, it's got that enormous stand, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, really big stand, and the rest of it's quite, well, that's how it was anyway. We have a little stand, and the rest is, well, we have seats now, but it was always, we only ever had a small stand. The rest is um, right. just big terrace. And it, it, right. it's, we've a good, just put it this way, we have a good surface, but you wouldn't take much of the, the sheds. Yeah. It's falling down, you know, like most League yeah. of Ireland grounds. I think you were just about to play Sunderland in a friendly when we were, when we passed through. It's probably about 2015 or something like that. So, yeah, I, I try and, I love geography. I love the geography of places. I love club shops, especially if, you know, obviously if, if you see somebody in the club, it's usually quiet when we go and we just say, is there any chance we can have a look, look at the pitch? Like the bloke from Arbroath took us onto the pitch and was t- talking to us about how he reckoned it was the coldest ground in the country and it really did look that way. <laughs> and we're talking to like, the groundsman at Queen of the South, <laughs> just talking about when the diggers dug up his surface and replaced it with, you know, the, uh, the the 3G. So, yeah, to get into a conversation at a football ground and just ask a little bit about the club and how it's going and who the best players are or who's the youngest player. I've done that with my dad on a smaller basis since I was, you know, five or six. If we went past the ground, even just the playground, you know, like where there was an hour to 
game going on, he'd stop and say, come on, let's have a look at this for 10 minutes, see if there's any anybody any good, you know, like, and it'd just be like a Sunday league match or something like that. So I'm always used to stopping off somewhere and every time I go past the, any pitch, and no matter how small, I always say, I bet there's been a good goal or two scored in those posts. You know, like when you look at the post, you can just tell they're like slightly wonky or a bit small or a bit big. And I just like, like put a little picture in my head. So when you go to somewhere like um, Shamrock Rovers, that's quite a big professional setup, but with a very friendly, uh, very friendly set of people. It's really nice. We went to uh, Bohemians and they were really friendly. The, I think the club secretary uh, took us round and was talking about she was a uh, Man United fan as well. Just, it's just nice to have conversations with people about football and about you know their you know their attendances and you know and they'll quite often say, well, you do know we had twenty thousand here for the UEFA Cup match in nineteen seventy six, and then you get home and look it up and there's this fantastic uh, crowd there. So it's an interesting football, but geography as well. Yeah, got, yeah, of course. I've got pictures everywhere of maps of different. I've got a big uh, picture there of the is the map of Scotland with all the teams and where they are. And I like to know where the smaller clubs like Annan are and Dumbarton and and whatever you, and and who their local right. Who do you hate? You know, like so Queen of the South obviously hates Stranra and Stranra hate Queen of the South. Do you know what I mean? And I like to. Why do you hate them? Oh, you know <laughs> they really start getting animated. You know, like saying they're totally different, but you sort of know they're similar, you know. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's meeting people and tell, hearing the story and and then you feel as though you're building up a bit of a knowledge of an area, you know. It's the first thing I do when I go on holiday in uh, Spain, you know, with my kids, is I say, look, I'm going to have to go to the local ground at some point and just, you know, see what it's like and, you know, see, see what the facilities are like. <laughs> And I'll just spend half an hour there. Quite often it's short or maybe I'll buy a paper and there's a, a junior match on the Saturday or something. But whatever, I've got to find out what it is about that area, you know, like that makes a, a place tick. And, it, and it's been fascinating. It, um, me and Dave Rothery used to do it. Dave wasn't really into football at first, but we went. We used to go to see the side of Ginnigan. And I, we went there one time and I said, Dave, that player, whoever it is, I said, he needs to be playing Sheffield United. He said, what? Dave was like, oh, what, who, him? And then Dave goes, oh, bloody hell, yeah. He's, he's amazing, he's amazing. And I was, was like, we are going to write down his name and we are going to take him back to England, you know, all that sort of crap. Anyway, years later, I got all, I, I still collect the football stickers like an idiot. Years later, about 96, I got the, um, the Spanish stickers. You know, it was for the World Cup. So it must have been 94 or 98 or something like that. And I said, so they, they used to give the birth dates, didn't it? The place, sorry, birthplace, right down to the hospital. And I've seen um, Juan Pablo Valeron, a Ginnigan. He's from a Gatsby. I rung Dave up. Dave, I think we found out who we've seen. And we, we worked it all the way back to a Ginnigan. And that player had been Juan Pablo Valeron. He looked exactly the same. He was playing in the match. And then I took an interest in that area. Is a very, it was a very deprived part of Gran Canaria. It also produced David Silva, you know, for Man City and several other very good players who went on to Las Palmas, etc. So that sort of thing where we just got, we got a taxi away from the touristy bit and went to this tiny little place called the Ginnigan. It feels as though it's like, I don't know, it's so fruitful. <laughs> Sometimes it's not, but usually there's some little story comes out of it, you know, like, or some interest, um, a further interest uh, in the area, you know. 
And you mentioned the Canaries there, Paul. Is that where you know you used to record in Holland, didn't you? you used to write, yeah, sorry, write your, write your albums in Holland. Right. Yeah, I wrote the lyrics in Holland, still do, and the music in Gran Canaria, yeah. And uh, I think, I don't know who you were doing the interview, um, like obviously you've played with you know all these musicians over the years, different musicians of different standards. You write the music with your guitar player now. Uh, yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit more long-winded than that. So I, I sort of, I, I go away and write the lyrics by myself, and to some of the lyrics, to remember the, to remember the meter of it, the rhythm of it, I write the tune in my head. If the tune's worth keeping, that's it. It's kept. I've re- written the whole thing. That includes bridge, verse, chorus. You know the whole thing. So I'd say about one in every three are like that. I've got the whole thing in my head and I just explain it to the guitarist. And the other two or three, the guitarist comes up with an idea and I try singing a melody on top of his idea. So, yeah, it, it's it, it's written a few different ways. But originally, I used to go to Holland because I was by myself and I just used to go over on the ferry from Hull. Um, and it was, used to be very cold in Holland to go in the winter. And then in the summer, we'd go away, me and Dave Rotherley, and go on a sort of like a package holiday, really, to Gran Canaria, have a laugh. And the two things everybody used to say, oh, why are the lyrics so miserable and why are the songs and tunes so um, melodic and happy sounding? That was really my reason, not just the winter in Holland and the summer in Gran Canaria, but also being by yourself to having a laugh with Dave Rotherley. Do you know what I mean? It was, it was a big difference. I was in a really sort of... When I used to go away to Holland by myself, it was really... I used to get into a real sort of drinking a lot, but also quite a depressive state and write all these lyrics. And then in the summer, going away with him, we'd just be laughing all the time and the, the sun would be outside. And it, yeah, just, and I can understand why it was more, you know, melodic than the, you know, than the, and more fun than the uh, lyric writing by myself. Yeah, because from that, um, interview, I remember you saying something, like, correct me if I'm wrong, that, he played it in like pub bands, so he played loads of different genres of music. Now that's probably Johnny. That's probably Johnny more than anything. Johnny, uh, who I write with, who I've written since 2014. And the reason why I bring it up is because Ronan, the producer of, of the podcast, is a musician. And right. He plays and he does a solo in the pub, and then he has a band that does weddings and gigs right. and whatever. And I was telling him, I said, I was listening to an interview, and, and he was going, See, I told you, he says, You can learn. He says, You need, he says, Pub musicians, they know every tune, they know everything, and he was, he was delighted. So I'm just getting that fact out, so uh, he'll be happy yeah. now when he when he hears I the think, interview. I think he's right. I think also Ireland, and this is one one way we are connected, without a doubt. Um, you know, Britain and Ireland is Ireland and Britain are just full of musicians. You know, like every my I've I've got a lot of friends in Germany, and I've known them for a long time, forty years actually. Uh, next month. I've known them, I've been going to visit them. And they just come to England and they just say, everybody's in a band. And when they go to the island, it's the same. They see people playing in the pubs, they see people playing on the streets, busking, and they just think that the British Isles and Ireland are just full of musicians. And they sort of are. I mean, when I'm when I'm round here, right, yes, the other day somebody come round to do the electrics, right? And straight away, yeah, I used to be a bassist in a band a few years ago, you know, like, and there was so many people who joined bands after school or during school, or and there's people who play in pubs for the whole of their lives quite happily. And, yeah, your mate's right. It is a really good way. 
a good way of learning an instrument is actually playing other people's songs because they're playing in all these different styles to how you'd naturally play anyway. So Johnny, Johnny, I can just throw any genre at him and just say, look, I want this a bit more bluesy or punky or whatever. And he can, he can do it, you know, which is great for me. And, and early in the career, Paul, like I would always have thought, you know, there was gospel influence, there was soul influence. Yeah. But I suppose from DIY, there's, there's, there's a country influence there as well. So you're influenced by loads of music. Yeah, I mean, the Beautiful South was, were, you know, influenced by country music. Old Red Eyes, if you strip it down, is really a country song. A Little Time is quite countryfied, you know, Brenner's voice on it. So, yeah, we've always had a few different influences. I think at the start of the House Martins, Probably I'd been listening to Al Green and, and, and Bill Withers and, you know, like soul singers like that, the softer soul singers. Um, so that, that was a big influence for me as well. But, yeah, I just, yeah, I think, yeah, there's all sorts of influences creeping. Not massive ones. Just, you know, I, I think we still play pop, but, uh, you know, yeah, you can hear where, what I've been listening to recently usually. Like when I said earlier on about the, the vast array, like, do you know how many hits you've wrote or how many albums you've recorded or how many singles you've released? Because it's, I would have, I wouldn't have them all, but I've most of them, and it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's about, I, I know how many albums it is, it's like 20, I think, uh, and it's a, f- a few hundred songs um, that I've written. So it's a lot, it's, it's, it's a challenge not to, not to repeat what you've written already, but, um, you know, just occasionally I think, oh, that sounds like something. And it gets more difficult to remember as you get older. But in general, I, I never struggle to, I certainly won't struggle for lyrics because I'm, I'm, I'm so opinionated and I'm so, I describe it as bitchy, but it's probably the wrong word. But whenever I see somebody, I can write a song about them, if you see what I mean. I, I, you know, like I'm, if I look at a bus queue, I can see things going on. <laughs> On there, I, I don't want people to think I look at people and just write songs all the time. But I see a lot of stories in people, the way people walk or the shopping they're carrying. Or do, do you know what I mean? I think there's a. I like uh, hidden hidden things in the way in normality. And because I'm writing about fairly normal people, fairly normal people are the most complicated, aren't they? I think some of your songs, even for like early stuff, "Woman in the Wall." Uh, you, know, you, you mentioned all red eyes now. We can relate to them because where we live, you know, in the council estates we grew up in and where we live now and our mates and their fathers or our grandfathers or something, we see people in them songs. Like, yeah, so yeah. we can relate lyrically with them. And I'm always surprised about you know, some of the people that would, would be at a beautiful South or, or a party and gig because I'm yeah. saying they definitely like the music, but they don't look like they know what he's singing about because... No. You, you were on the Late Late Show with Ryan Tuberty. I'm yeah. sure you've been on it a couple of times. Now, that's a massive show in Ireland. You know, yeah. that's from when I was a kid, from Gay Bones time right up. Yeah, and yeah. I seen him at the gig at Trinity College and he, right. he just he, he just looked like a fish out of water. Like, you know, he just, with his yeah. blazer on his little, you know, and that was one of the moments when I said, you know, he loves the tunes, but I definitely, he definitely doesn't know what they're singing about. <laughs> <laughs> that, never ma- that never mattered to me, you see, weirdly enough. I know it should do. It never did, because I thought, well, if in a way, if people don't know what I'm singing about, it's up to them to come to the lyrics if they want to, or if they, because there's a lot of music. There's some music I listen to, and I think the lyrics are important here, but some of it, 
I listen to the tune first and I'll quite happily listen to the tune and never really find out what the song is about. I sort of probably guess it's not that interesting, but I just listen to it purely on a musical way. And that was one of the big privileges I thought we had is people used to say, oh, yeah, but people don't understand what you're talking about. I say, I'm not bothered. It, It doesn't. What I think is as long as some of the audience understand, some of them can be there just because they like the tune. We we don't get anybody there just because they like the look of us. <laughs> That's for sure. Maybe <laughs> but in general, we never did. You know, because don't forget, a lot of these people who go to say uh, one of the boy bands ones, they will like you know, one of the things about seeing their band would be to actually look at them and think they're lovely looking lads, you know, and they're singing like angels, etc. We never had that, but we did have people who who really looked at the lyrics and thought yeah, that's about me or that's about that person next door or whatever. And a load of people just didn't appear that interested, just loved the tunes. And I think that was a a plus, really, that we could get them both in the same room and maybe by a song like Heat and Grad, they'd suddenly click, hang on a second. (laughs) And, you know, at least you've you've got them as a fan already. And the same same with me politics, really. People know what I stand for but they don't want to hear it every day. Do you know what I mean? They don't want to hear me giving my opinion here, you know, left, right and centre. They, they just know, know I'm out there on the left, you know. Well, we want to hear your politics, Paul. We want to hear, you know, you, you, you can yeah. on the, we, yeah. we'll do a daily yeah. podcast. Paul's 15 minutes. Well, unfortunately, we don't have 15 minutes every day with Paul Heaton. We would love to have, but we do have him next Friday for the second part. He's an inspirational figure who never forgot his roots, never left his community when fame and money came calling. And a special mention to his dad for the advice to keep it real. Paul, you're a working class hero and a decent human being. And I'm looking forward to hearing about your love affair with Italian football in the mid 80s till the mid 90s when one man stood out, Mr. Diego Maradona, who you were lucky enough to see a few times. And we'll also hear a bit more about Paul's musical career and his love of life in general. And maybe we might even chat about a few gigs and him popping up in Drogheda and Slane. Now, this is the part of the show where I promote the fanzine where it all started over 20 years ago. Issue 115, and we're working on it at the moment. Thanks to all the contributors for the excellent articles they sent in. We've got stuff on history. We've got plenty of comment, plenty of debate. And we've also got a couple of interviews. So I'd like to thank Darren O'Dee, for chatting to us and also Simon Donnelly and Simon's a big music man so I'm sure he enjoyed this podcast with Paul we still have about 30 copies of issue 114 left which you can now buy on CelticFansin.com and you can also download the digital copy and anyone taking out a 12 month subscription will receive a free t-shirt in the post as a thank you for your continued support also all subscribers will also get a digital copy of each issue while they wait for the print copy to drop through the letterbox and you'll also have access to our back issue library through the website. With no match day sales, your support means that we can continue to produce the print edition and full subscription details will be in the podcast description. You can also visit our online shop where you can buy t-shirts and a bit of merchandise. And as always, I would like to thank my producer, Ronan McQuillan, for producing the show and for singing a song around the, the studio every day for me on his acoustic guitar. <laughs> have to start doing that now. And thanks also to Daniel Faulkner for his work on this week's Celtic Fanzine TV, Celtic AM and the Talk of the Terraces with Joe Miller, which I'm still laughing about. 
Folks, if you like what we're doing and you would like to support us, you can do so by visiting SaltyFinesing.com, where you can become a member, subscribe, buy, or donate for the price of a pint, or if you're a non-drinker, the price of a coffee. We've avoided signing up for those unwanted pop-up adverts on the website and also the advert interruptions on the podcast, as we want to try and keep it independent and keep it real and have full control over everything we do. Your support will help us to continue to produce quality independent fan journalism, podcast, video content and free live fan events. Please download our app, it's free, and you'll have access to all the podcasts, articles, daily news, video, info on upcoming events if we ever get to do one, the fanzine and our online shop, all at the touch of a button on your phone or tablet. All episodes of the podcast are now available throughout all platforms, so hit the subscribe or follow button and you'll never miss an episode. The podcasts are also available with our video content on Celtic Fanzine TV on YouTube. And also, if you can, just subscribe to that or give it a like or a follow or whatever you do on that one. We're on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn and Twitter. So please, don't forget to give us a follow on that as well. And thanks again to our episode sponsors, McCool's Bar Glasgow and Madden Centre Terma Fecken. And please visit the podcast descriptions and you'll get all the details of both our sponsors. If your business or Celtic Supporters Club like what we do with the podcast and would like to become a sponsor, please email us at info at sallyfanzine.com and you can also contact us through the website or message us on social media. Well, folks, that's it for this episode. It's been a special episode for me. Paul Heaton has influenced me from I've been a teenager. Um, his words, his music, his politics and his standing on social issues and standing up for the walking man on the street have always impressed me. We don't support the same football team, but we share so much in common. Football fans, working class, and what he's done as a person, not only on stage, but to put his hand in his own pocket, to pay off workers, to support the miners, to support his community. You're a wonderful man, Paul, and it was an honour to chat. So, folks, we have a big game this weekend, the Glasgow Derby. I hope we win. But remember, folks, win, lose, or draw. Most of us will wake up as Celtic fans the next morning. And we always have to remember that. But I'm hoping for a win. I'm hoping to get a few cans from Madden's off-license Central Town and Fecken from Melon Ray to enjoy the celebrations if I do get the opportunity to celebrate. So, folks, stay tuned, stay safe, keep the faith. And who else could I get to play us out today? Only Paul Heaton and Jackie Abbott. She's a perfect 10, but she wears a 12. Baby, keep a little two for me She could be sweet 16 Busting out of the seams It's still love in the first degree When he's at my game With a big fat A You wanna see the smile on my face And even at my door With a poor, poor four there ain't no man can replace Cause we love our love In different sizes I love her body Especially the lies Time takes its toll But not on the eyes Promise me this Take me tonight If it's extra large Well, I'm in charge I can't work this thing on top And if he's XXL Well, what the hell Every penny don't fit the slot Ah, Diana 
Brexit chicks, the model six, they don't hold no weight with me. Well, eight or nine, well, that's just fine, but I like to hold something I can see. Sweet love, I love different sizes. I bought a calendar uh -huh. And every month uh -huh. Is taken up by the love of me Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 